Good morning, Lighthouse. It's good to see you all. We're so glad you're here this morning. My name is Bill Nelson. I'm so glad you are here. Feel free to stand with us if you want to worship and praise this morning. We're going to sing a couple songs together. And we hope that you're here to just enjoy being together, fellowshipping, and loving the Lord. Let's sing forever. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. For He is good, He is above all things. His love endures forever. Sing praise, sing praise. The mighty hand and outstretched arm. His love endures forever. I have decided, I have resolved to 
Thank you, Jesus, that you will respond to our thirsty hearts. We come this day, Father, because we have decided. Speak boldly through our pastor. May our hearts be open this day to hear your word, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning. Uh, my wife was searching for me a few minutes ago because 
I've already sweated through one shirt today, so this is number two. And let me just say, uh, if you ever do public speaking, grays and tans are not your friends. So we're going black now. Anyway, and, and post-COVID, black is also slimming, so that's helpful as well. So anyway, um, I am so glad to be here with you this morning. That has absolutely nothing to do with my, my message at all. Just kind of, we're family, right? We can just be real and honest with one another. And um, we're going to be we're going to be unpacking a portion of scripture that we've already looked at a little bit, but we're going to be continuing to unpack it to try to go a little bit deeper because it's such an incredibly important passage. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 15 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seat backs in front of you. I would encourage you to grab one. Um, if you don't own a Bible and you would like to, you're more than welcome to take that one. We've got extra. We are happy to share. Uh, if you already have four or five of those at home, maybe you can bring one back or, or pay it forward, give it to somebody else. Don't sell it on eBay or anything like that, okay? Anyway, I know. I'm, I'm a little frisky right now this morning. Um, we, I, I'm a parent, and so not only do I have really bad humor that I think is funny and that's all that really matters, um, is that I get my jokes regardless of whether anybody else does. And, and, and let's just be honest, fathers... The louder the groan, the more of an honor that is to the joke, right? It almost makes you more proud of the joke when people are groaning about it. At least that is for me, all right? Uh, if I'm the only one who gets it, that's cool. I'm enjoying it. But another thing that I have learned to do as a father is to use metaphors to try to teach otherwise kind of uh, difficult to grasp concepts. So, for instance, when I'm trying to teach my kids multiplication, that can be really heady. For my, for my son, Ethan, he got it immediately. He didn't need any issues. With, he had no issues with this. But for Grayson, my second born, the, the numbers don't come quite as easily to him, so I tried to make it more accessible. I would go grab a handful of pencils, and i say, okay, we have seven pencils here, right? If we're going to multiply seven times three, let's break these pencils into three pieces. Go ahead and do that, right? And he breaks each pencil, and I go, now how many pieces, how many pencils do you have? And he counts them up. 21. See, that's seven times three. We went through a lot of pencils during that stage. <laughs> pencils, crayons, whatever, you know? But he gets it. And that's the point of, of metaphors and things like that, is to try to take something lofty and make it accessible. It's what C.S. Lewis did with, with like the Chronicles of Narnia, taking very lofty topics and making them much more accessible. But all of that, the master metaphor maker was Jesus. And this is evident if you read through the Gospels. He was so unbelievably good at using things that people were familiar with to help get things that they may not have been as familiar with. And I didn't get this. I knew this intellectually, but I didn't understand it as deeply until a couple of years ago when some of us were in Israel together. And there was this one particular day when we were walking down what is known as Mount Arbal. It's this big granite mountain that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. And we, we started at the top of it, and we got to walk in the footsteps of Jesus down this really precarious path that then once you get to the bottom of the granite part, led through these beautiful green and yellow fields of wild mustard because they were in the middle of one of those super blooms like we were having at the same time. So it was like Back Bay. Have any of you guys ever walked through Back Bay and you see when the mustard is just going crazy? Not when it's like a fire hazard like it is today. But, but when the mustard is still yellow and beautiful. We were walking through these fields of wild mustard, and all of a sudden it dawned on me. 
Jesus was walking along the, a path, probably maybe even the same path, when he's talking with his disciples and he says, hey guys, if you have faith the size of one of these mustard seeds, you can tell that mountain right there to go throw itself into the sea. See, Galilee's right there. And it'll comply. It's like, oh my gosh. That's probably, I mean, Jesus wasn't just pulling things out of thin air. He was pointing things that were right in front of them and using them as an illustration or a metaphor to help get like lofty theological points across. And we see him doing this all throughout this final meal that he has with his disciples. The first metaphor, the first thing he uses to communicate a really important detail is when he takes his outer robe off, he gets down and he washes his disciples' feet. And he goes, guys, in the same way that I am washing your feet, I'm your, I'm your rabbi. You, you should be washing my feet, but the fact that I am doing this, I want you to do this for one another because power and, and, and authority is not something to be used to your own advantage. The higher you climb, that ladder's inverted, and the more people you have to serve. So don't lord it over the rest of, like the world does. Use your power and your authority and your position to serve others. Your posture should be one of servant leadership. And then the meal is served, and as he's having the meal together, he takes a, a piece of bread, and he takes a cup of wine, and he says, this bread, this bread symbolizes my body, which I'm giving for you. And every time you eat of it, remember what I'm about to do for you. And this cup symbolizes the blood that's going to be poured out for you. And he uses elements that they were very familiar with and repackages them in such a way that they come to mean something different. And then after the meal is finished... He goes, hey, guys, let's head out. And they, they leave the upper room, and they begin to walk towards the Mount of Olives where they're going to spend the evening, and he's going to spend some time praying. And along the way, what I think probably ended up happening is along the way, he saw some, some cultivated grapevines that were growing in somebody's garden. And it's yet another opportunity for him to communicate a really important detail using the metaphor of a vine. And so that's where that's going to lead us into this passage that we started to read last week, but we only got about halfway through. So today we're going to kind of finish working through this passage. John 15, verse 1. Jesus, pointing to these vines as he's walking by, goes, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Now remain in me as I also remain in you. No, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. He's, sometimes with kids you have to repeat it. With his disciples he's making sure he's just hitting that same note over and over. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remain in me, and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You will have no lasting fruit. If you don't remain in me, then you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So, using this metaphor, and let's just really briefly remind ourselves of what he's saying before we move on. 
using the metaphor of a grapevine, which is the, the roots and, and, and kind of the, the real big part of the vine, the branches are the, what, what come off of the vine, and they are the ones that ultimately bear the fruit. But he goes, I am the vine. I am the source of nourishment. I'm the source of life. My father, he's the gardener. He's the one not only planted the vine, but tends the vine to make sure that it actually produces fruit. And you are a branch on this vine. And you're, by abiding in me, by remaining in me, you will bear fruit. But of course, this begs the question, what does he mean by remain in me? The the word there in in the Greek is meno, M-E-N-O. And there's a lot of different ways that translators have tried to get at what that word means. And it's a really important word for us to get across because he uses it 11 times. 11 times he commands them to mino, to remain. Or some, some verses use abide or rest. And in fact, let's look at a, a couple of different translations here. Can we throw those up there for just a moment? So in the King James Version, it says, abide in me and I in you. This is verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. Uh, The CEV, the Contemporary English Version, uses stay joined to me and I will stay joined to you. And the message, which I love, is more of a devotional as opposed to, if if you're going to study scripture, you probably don't want to study it in the message, but I love it from a devotional standpoint. He says, live in me, make your home in me just as I do in you. And each of these different translations is trying to get at the heart of what it means to mino, to abide, to rest in, to live out of. And that's incredibly important. Again, because Jesus 11 times tells them to rest in him. The question, of course, is how do we do that? Particularly when Jesus has just warned his disciples that he's going to leave. You remember this, right? Because in chapter 14, he straight up told his disciples, guys, I'm going. And where I'm going, you can't follow me right now. And it freaked them out. In fact, that has been the entire focus for them of this meal. He he told them, love one another as I've loved you. They didn't even hear him because they're more focused on the fact that he said, I'm going away and, and you can't follow. And they're freaking out. Like, where are you going and why can't we go with you, Jesus? We'll follow you anywhere. Peter's like, I'll die for you. And Jesus is like, trust me, dude. You, you think that, but you ha- you're, even you are going to deny me. And so the focus of Jesus going away is still fresh in their minds. And now he's telling them, remain in me, stay connected to me. So it begs the question, how? And of course, this is where uh, our modern translations or our our modern Bibles do us a little bit of a disservice because the chapter breaks and the verse breaks that we have in there and the paragraph breaks that we have in there, while helpful to us in studying it, because we can say, hey, let's go to chapter 15, verse whatever, That's helpful to us in being able to know where we're at and being on the same page. It's not helpful when it begins to chunk up a conversation that takes place over several chapters. And that is exactly what the chapter break does for us in this. Because he doesn't explain how we abide in him in chapter 15. He does it rather in chapter 14. In fact, the second half of chapter 14 goes into great detail about how we 
as his followers, as his disciples, as those who are trying to be shaped in his image and follow him, how we are to abide or remain in him. And so let's go back to chapter 14 for just a second. Specifically go to verse 15. Jesus says there, If you love me, then keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate or another paraclete, one that comes alongside, to be with you forever. And that advocate is the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Now, what he's basically suggesting is that the Holy Spirit is the way that we remain connected to Jesus, but it may not be all that apparent when we read it this way. So let me put it up one more time, but there's one word in particular, in our, in our NIV translation at least, that is a little bit confusing, and that is the word lives with you, or the word lives because that's the same word that he just repeats 11 times in chapter 15, the word mino. The same word that we have translated remain or abide comes up with the Holy Spirit. So let me read it again, but I'm, I'm just changing it to abide. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he abides with you and will be in you. In other words, how on earth are his disciples supposed to remain or abide with Jesus when he's going away? Well, it's through the Holy Spirit. And to use the metaphor of the vine and the branches, if Jesus is the vine through which all nourishment comes and we are a branch off of that vine, then the Holy Spirit is the life-giving sap that flows through the vine and into the branch that not only keeps it alive, but actually gives it the ability to bear fruit at all. Does this make sense? You see how in this metaphor, the Holy Spirit is integral to our ability to do what we were created to do, to our ability to abide. Now, let me ask you a really important question, and this, this is going to be interactive here, so I'm expecting you guys to actually give it some thought and then to give me a response. Otherwise, it's going to be really awkward and quiet in here for a little bit. As the branches... What is our job? What are we responsible to do? Okay, so I heard two things. Let's go with the, let's go with the wrong answer first. Bear fruit. Uh-uh. I know that we would think that the answer is bear fruit because that we love to jump to the, the, the finish line, right? We love to jump to what comes afterward. And the whole point of having a vine with branches and cultivating it is fruit. But that is not the job of the branch. Eleven times we are not told to bear fruit. Eleven times we are told to abide or remain. That's why the Big Lebowski says the dude abides. That's probably not why he said it. He should have. When we abide, when we remain in Christ through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the natural byproduct of our remaining is fruit. And this is incredibly important for us in understanding what Jesus is saying because fruit is not a prerequisite to having an abiding relationship with Jesus. Fruit is the byproduct 
of, of an abiding relationship with Jesus. Let me say that again because it's so incredibly important. Fruit is not a prerequisite to our connection to the vine. It's not like if you bear fruit, then you get to be connected. We'll plug you in. It's as you are connected, you will bear fruit. That's the natural thing. Which comes first, the connection or the fruit? Thank you. You guys are awake this morning. Most of you. Valdi's back there. He's kind of snoring a little bit. Skin buddy. So the fruit comes, comes along as a result of our remaining connected. If we are disconnected, there will be no fruit. All right. We got, this, this, was all, this was all review. Now we're getting into the section that we didn't get to last week because Jesus isn't done with this metaphor. He's not done unpacking it. He wants to dig a little bit deeper, press a little bit harder. So let's go to verse 9 now of chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Now remain or abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain or abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and I remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has nobody than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. So this is my command, just in case you didn't hear me the first five times that I told you. Love each other. Now, and if some of you might listen to that, and you've actually paid attention. You say, wait a minute, Eric. You just said that fruit is not a prerequisite, but Jesus just said, if you want to remain in my love, you got to obey. So doesn't that in a way make our obedience and the fruit being obeying Jesus almost a prerequisite of our ability to stay connected to him? That's what it would seem. And, and I can understand how if you read this, let, let me just read these verses again. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, now remain in my love. So Good so far. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Okay, wait a minute here. That certainly seems to fly in the face of what a lot of pastors like to say, namely that we can't earn his love for us and we can't maintain his love for us through effort. That certainly seems to contradict much of what we like to talk about in the church. So what is he saying? Well, let me, let me first address why it sounds that way. We have grown up in a culture that treats love as contingent upon worthiness, right? For those of you who used to try to play sports, you want to get on the kickball team during recess, and they, and they go back and forth and they pick people. Who do they pick? The people they like, right? They pick the people that are really good first. And you're always, I was always that guy who's at the end Kind of like, are they going to pick me? Am I going to be last again? I really don't want to be last. And when you get picked first, you're like, yes, but here's the problem. 
If you get picked first, you get picked before the last person, you better perform. Otherwise, you're, you're hosed the next time, right? If you have a bad performance and you go out, you get out every single time, you're, they're not going to pick you early on again. And we live in a culture that reminds us over and over and over that we have to earn our standing with one another, that we have to do enough good things to make people want to be around us, to want to remain with us. Till death do us part, nah, how about until, you know, it gets uncomfortable? And guys, I, I have spent way too much of my life, I can't speak for you, I can speak for myself, I've spent way, way too much of my life trying to perform for other people to earn their approval. I started in my home. Not because my, my dad made me feel like I wasn't loved, but because I, I was a pretty impulsive kid. I know this will come as a shock to many of you. And so I would get in trouble a lot. I was a lot like my father. In fact, we tend to get on our kids about the very things that we don't like in ourselves. And I was a fiddler and my dad was a fiddler. He didn't like that about himself. He was constantly on me about that. I got easily distracted. For him, it was his books. He would just get lost in a book. For me, it was the television. It was like moving colors. And I'm like, you know, and I would forget that human beings existed around me. And he would get on me about that. And he would force me to go outside. And then he would sit in his chair and read his book. And I'm like, come on, dude. <laughs> and, and I was constantly under the impression, my perception was, that my dad was disappointed in me. And so guess what I did? I did everything I could to make my dad proud of me. I my dad would read thousand-page biographies about dead people, like Winston Churchill was one of his. Like, so guess what I did? I read thousand pages. I read the same biographies about the same dead people so that we could have conversation. I so desperately wanted his approval. I would, I would perform for my dad. I would put on, like, I would, my dad was stoic. I would be stoic around my dad. And then I'd get around my friends, and well, they don't like stoic. They like silly, so I'll act silly. And it was almost like I had different masks that I would wear around different people. I know I'm probably the only one in here who's ever done this. Where I, I'm one person around my dad, or later on it was around my employers. That I would, and then I get around my friends and I become Mr. Silly, Mr. Irreverent, Eric, and then I get to church and it's like a totally different mask, right? Like, oh, hello, brother. Yes, it's good to see you as well. <laughs> oh, yes, everything is wonderful at home. Yes. I know none of us have ever, none of you can identify with this, but I lived my life with a, like, like I had a sign around my neck that said, validate me. And then I would go from person to person to person saying, what, what do I need to be in order to earn your validation? That's who I'll become. And I got really stinking good at wearing masks. By the way, for the, I wrote a book a couple of years ago about identity because I was working through this and I found that there's so many other people could identify. And there's copies of it in the front. If you want one, please do it because I explore this idea of being a mask wearer and becoming what other people want because it's just so much part of the human condition because we have been so shaped by our culture. And so is it any wonder that when we read Remain in My Love, if, if you obey my commandments, you'll remain in my love. We read that as, ooh, I've got to do this 
in order to remain in Jesus' love, in order to remain in God's love, we read it as 21st century men and women who have been shaped by a culture that tells us that love is contingent upon our effort and upon our performance. And as people who have gotten really good at running on the hamster wheel of performance and recognizing that we're only as good as our last performance, so I might have killed the last time I was, you know, I might have done a great job and people loved the jokes that I was using the last time, but I'm only, now I got to perform again and I got I to do better this time, otherwise they're going to reject me. Or I, last month I had a great month and my sales were awesome, but they're all forgotten and now I got to perform again. Or I I scored two goals in the last game I played in, but now it's a new game, and and it's 0-0, and I have got to perform again. What an exhausting life to run on the hamster wheel and, and, and recognize that if we stumble even for a moment, people will reject us. I know that probably none of you out here can identify, but what an exhausting existence to feel like every couple of days you got to post something on social media just so people will remember that you exist and that you matter, and then to go back over and over and go, did they, did they like it? Did I get a thumbs up? Did they comment? Did they share? Do I have as many as the last time? I know none of you can identify with this. Is it any wonder why for some of us, We read Jesus' words and we hear it through that lens because we have been trained to hear it with that lens. But I've got really good news for you. That is absolutely categorically not what Jesus is saying when he says, remain in my love. And if you, you know, do what I say, if you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love. He's not suggesting that we have to that our obedience ultimately determines our connection or our abiding to him. And you know how I know that? Two reasons. Number one, it would utterly contradict so much of Scripture. So much of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, reminds us over and over and over again that our standing with God is not determined by our effort or even our obedience. Let's just throw up a couple of examples. Let's put up Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. Ephesians 2, because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Next slide. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Last slide. For it is by grace, not effort, that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, not by effort, not by performance, so that nobody, nobody can beat their chest and say, I've done it. I've earned God's love. I'm such a good person that he's got to accept me. Why are you going to go to heaven? Because I'm a good person. Nope, sorry. Every single one of us has fallen woefully short. And none of us, none of us can stand on our own efforts and say, I'm good enough. By ourselves, we're not enough. 
But because of his grace, we are. It is by grace. And, and the beautiful part in this is that regardless of your educational background, Regardless of your skin color, regardless of your gender, regardless of your socioeconomic standing, regardless of what political ideology you identify with, every single one of us has the same foundation of our relationship with God, namely grace, not effort. Not even necessarily having it, the theology exactly right, because I can guarantee you as I look in this room and I look into the eyes of people I love and respect, every single one of you has misunderstood and continues to this moment to misunderstand God in some category. Me too. See, we're all in good company. We're all mistaken in some way. And that's why we are constantly learning more about him and growing more in him. And, and, and we are right now looking through this glass dimly lit. Like, it's almost like we're looking in a reflection to try to understand who God is. One day we won't need the reflection any longer. We'll get to see him face to face and so much of our misconceptions will fall away. But here's the beautiful thing about our father. That even though we misunderstand him and even though we misrepresent him and even though we try really hard to represent him well and we screw it up, he still loves us. And he still accepts us just as we are. Not because we've done an other, enough other good things to make up for our stupidity or our disobedience, but because our foundation of our relationship with him has always been his love. In fact, do we have 1 John in there? Can we throw that up there? We may or may not. I don't know if we got that one. All right, let me just read this one. This is a really fun one. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love. You want to know what love is? Not that we loved God as if we were the originators of this, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The love that we have, the abiding connection that we have with the Father is not something that we established or we earned or that we maintain. Rather, it's something that he established by sending Jesus while, when we were still living in open rebellion to him. Now, I understand if this feels a little heady. This stinking microphone does not want to cooperate. I understand if this might feel a little bit heady, and that's one of the reasons why Jesus used metaphor so much. Because sometimes it is heady, and it is hard to understand, or at the very least, we might intellectually get it. Oh, yeah, God loves me, and it's not because I've earned it. But when a rubber meets the road, oh, it absolutely does not translate. I have a feeling some of us in our mind understand things about God that our hearts have yet to accept. And when it comes to our identity, when it comes to our relationship with God, this is incredibly important. Because we cannot earn our standing with God. Our obedience is not a prerequisite to our abiding connection to, to God even though it might sound like Jesus is saying that. Number one is because if Jesus is saying that here, he is contradicting much of Scripture or other Scriptures are contradicting him. The second reason I know that Jesus is not suggesting that we have to obey in order to have a relationship with him, in order to abide with him, 
is because that has never, ever been what mino, that word that we translate abide or remain, means. Mino has never meant effort. Mino has never meant do stuff. Mino, at its core, is all about resting in, living out of. And so here is what Jesus is actually saying. Not, you better obey in order to remain, but rather, hey guys, you are loved. Now rest in that truth and live out of that truth. Because if you can simply remain in my love, rather than feeling like you're outside of it and have to do something to earn it, then you will be able to obey me. And by the way, my command Simply this, love one another as I've loved you. The only way you're going to be able to obey that command is if you come from the starting point of the fact that you are loved. So let me, God bless you, let me give you another metaphor in order to take this lofty concept and make it accessible. I've got two sons. I love them both incredibly. Ethan is my oldest. Grayson is my youngest. Grayson's across the street right now. I love those boys, and I have loved them since before. And, and by the way, Ethan absolutely hates the fact that I ever use him as an illustration, which is why I love as his father to do it all the time. <laughs> now, I'm, the reason I do it is because, honestly, Ethan, it, it, is, it is, you have taught me more about God's love than I think anybody on this planet. Because I didn't understand God's overwhelming, never-ending, self-sacrificial love until I held you in my arms. I thought I understood love. I, I thought that your mom had taught me about love because, it, because we had been through a lot and, and continue to go through a lot when you're married. It's hard when you take two very different people and try to bring your lives together and you realize, I'm a selfish jerk. I don't like how, what, what I see about myself when I'm close. And there's this part of us that it's just easier to run the other way because then we get to stay with our selfishness and not have to face our selfishness. But I often thought that I had to earn God's love and that I, I was only as good as my last week of walking with him. That's how my relationship was determined by him until the day I held you in my arms. And even before you ever saw the light and breathed your first breath, you had my heart. But there was no question the moment I saw you and the moment I held you that I would die in a, in a heartbeat for you. I would give my life without thought for you. Not because of anything you did. It's not like you earned my love. You simply had it. I mean, let's be honest. In the first year of your life, you, you cost us sleep. <laughs> cost us a whole heck of a lot of money. I had to deal with your crap constantly. And your mom had no energy for me. You were everything to her. It's like, come on. And yet, you had my heart, and you still do. Those of us who are parents get this, right? We love our children, not because they've earned it, not because they did something to enter our good graces. And they, as they get older and they start getting a little bit more willful, in fact, this becomes even more pronounced because Ethan... You, you, you will not always necessarily obey what I ask you to do. You won't always be respectful in the way that you respond. And guess what? That doesn't change the, how much I love you. I don't necessarily like what you do all the time. I don't appreciate it. And I discipline you because I love you, even though it might not necessarily feel like that because it might just feel like dad's mean. Mom's nicer. Let me ask mom. 
good cop, bad cop. Um, but my love for you never wavers. It never has wavered. You didn't do anything to earn my love. You can't do anything to lose my love. You are my son. And it's that relationship that helps me understand my relationship with my father. And I hope for those of you who have some, sem- like, that you can begin to see this is the way the father feels towards us. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. And this is the insidious thing. I got two boys, and even though they are absolutely and utterly secure in my love, they didn't do anything to earn it, they can't lose it, but they don't always feel all that loved. A lot of times, particularly when something's gotten broken around the house or or dad's in a bad mood or something, hypothetically speaking, that never really happens. and so I, I respond with, with anger, perhaps, or I, I, I'm, I'm disappointed because they didn't do something that they said they would do, or something p- perhaps does get broken. <laughs> There's this sense of, oh, crap, we're not secure in dad's love right now. And then in that moment, their natural recourse is the same thing that Adam and Eve did when they stumbled, right? They point the finger. They cast the blame. They at least try to share the blame. No, 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 it wasn't me. It was him. He did it. You know, look at him. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I, I hit him, but, you know, he, he, he kicked me first. I, I just, I barely tapped him, Dad. Then why is he crying? Well, because he's weak. <laughs> Hypothetically speaking, right? This, 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 this is a conversation that has never taken place in our house. I'm simply giving you hypotheticals. Got you. <sighs> Mama D, do you want to come up and share some stories of what is happening? No, I'm not going to ask that. When my boys don't feel secure in their standing and in I love, it's really stinking difficult for them to love their brother, right? It's much easier for them instead to try to blame their brother or push their brother down. When they feel insecure, it is so unbelievably easy to try to point at somebody else and say, focus over there. And guys, we can pick on our kids about this, but we do this as adults all the time. And in fact, we see our politicians do it constantly. This is the human predicament. Rather than owning our junk, we love to blame. And why do we love to do this? Because we feel insecure. We feel that the love and our standing and our identity is contingent upon how people feel about us, and we don't feel that that's secure, so it's just easier to pass the buck and get somebody to look elsewhere, whether that's to our, our sibling or to our spouse or to a coworker, or to an employee or to an employer or to the other political party. We love to point the finger because we are insecure. And guys, we're called to to bear fruit that will last, but as you probably just saw up on the screen, fruit does not grow out of the soil of insecurity. When we are insecure, the fruit of obedience, which is love, does not naturally get produced. Now, when my boys do feel loved, when they do feel secure, when they do feel that they are enough, 
suddenly it's easier for them to give grace to their sibling and to not have to point the finger, and their relationship flourishes because they're actually nice to one another. And we see this as well. When we are secure, it's easier for us to love one another. Do you see that in yourself? When you feel secure in a relationship, it's easier to give love. And this is the point that Jesus is making. You are loved. That's the foundation. That's the beginning point. That's not the end point. It's the beginning point. You are loved. You are secure. You are enough in me, in my love, in my grace. Live out of that. Rest in that truth. You don't have to strive to prove you're worthy. You are, I have made you worthy because of the cross. And, and just to paraphrase this section, I, I, just, I took my hand at kind of paraphrasing what Jesus is saying in the second half of what we've read. This is, this is the heart of what he's saying. This is, I'm putting it in Wayman's terms, which is similar to layman's terms, but it's not as good. You are loved. Just as the Father loves me, so I love you. Now rest in that love. Live out of it. And if you do, obedience will come easily. You'll find it far easier to obey my commands. And in case you've forgotten what those commands are, let me remind you. Love one another, just as I've loved you. Love genuinely, sacrificially. Guys, this is how I've loved you, and it's how I'm going to love you. After all, there's no greater expression of love than to die for one's friends. They have no idea, by the way, that he's about to, within 24 hours, be hanging on a cross for them. But he, he knows this. And you are my friends. You're not just servants tasked with blindly carrying out my will. You are my friends who know my heart and understand where I'm coming from and what I'm trying to do. Remember, I did, you didn't choose me. You didn't earn this standing. I chose you. And I am sending you now to bear fruit, lasting fruit, fruit that can only come from our ongoing connection to one another. So don't love one another as the world loves. Don't love conditionally. Love as I have loved you. Love unconditionally, sacrificially. Like I said in the beginning, Jesus is the master metaphor maker. He takes a vine, a grapevine, and he uses it to communicate that they are utterly secure and that through their abiding connection with him, through the enablement of the Holy Spirit, they will be able to do the work that he has been doing, namely by loving them and sacrificially kind of producing fruit in this world. And I, I love that for them, my guess is that every time from that moment forward that they saw a grapevine, it reminded them of their standing with him. But I would suggest that for the majority of us in here this morning, uh, fruit and grapevines is not something that we're all that familiar with, right? Like even Jeff, after teaching on it last week, he's on vacation this week, and he's like, I want to see grapevines. He had to drive hours out of his way to go find some. 
We just don't have them around us. And unless you're Diane Winicky, most of us probably kill more bushes than we, we, we cultivate, right? She's got a green thumb. I've got a brown thumb. I'll just speak for myself. This metaphor doesn't necessarily work as well. So let me give you another metaphor, one, one that does work for me, one that you guys are familiar with, and one that will give me an excuse to pull this beauty out again. Okay? You guys, I know it's been like over a year since we got to see it, so I had to pull it out. This is a light bulb. This represents you and I because in the same way that we are called to produce fruit, you and I were called, created to produce light. We are called the light of the world, to be a reflection of the light, of the original light of the world who is Jesus, right? He was the light of the world. He radiated into the darkness the heart and the values of God. Well, you and I were created to bear light just like him. I haven't dropped it yet. It's been like four years. Don't jinx it. You and I were created to bear light. But here's the thing. What if the prerequisite to being able to connect to Jesus was that we had to bear light to prove our worthiness? All right, Eric, do it. I can try really hard. I can think really hard at this. Make light. I can't do it. No matter how hard I try, I can't bear light by myself, but here's the beautiful thing, and here's where the metaphor works. We were never created to bear light by ourselves. We were created, rather, our job is not to bear light. Our job is to abide, to remain, to stay connected. And so, if, I'm, if you and I are light bulbs, then Jesus is the power source. And the only way that we can do what we were created to do is to remain connected to him. And when we do, when we screw our lives deep down into him and stay there, suddenly, without effort, we start producing what we were created to produce. With the metaphor of the vine and the branches, it's fruit. With the metaphor of the light bulb, it's light. But our job is not to bear light. Our job is to remain connected. And so the most important part of a light bulb in this analogy is the part that we don't see. It's the part that is screwed deep down into Jesus. And according to this metaphor, the only reason this happens is because there's a Holy Spirit of God that he has given to us. And that Holy Spirit is the electricity that flows from the vine or from the power source into us. And here's the other beautiful part of this analogy and why I love it so much. You see this part that's glowing, this filament? This filament represents our life together. The fact that we were not created to do life alone. And one of the frustrating things of this last two years is how much COVID and other things have kind of forced us apart. Even so much so that when we walk down the street and we see somebody, we have this tendency to kind of like give them a wide berth. Man, we have so much unlearning to do. We have so much unlearning to do from these last couple of years. But you and I were created to do life together. And so this represents the life together of believers connecting to one another. And as the, the Holy Spirit begins to permeate our hearts and flow through us, through our connections with one another, through the way that we love one another, guess what happens? 
Our lives will naturally begin to bear fruit or to radiate light into the darkness. We will begin to represent the heart of our Father. We will begin to represent the heart of our Lord Jesus who came before us. You and I were created to be bulbs, but the only way that we can ever do what we were created to do is to abide deeply, to remain deeply in the loving relationship that our Father has for us. Not because you earned it, not because you're good enough, but because He loves you and He says you are enough. So, if you hope to do what you were created to produce, which is light, it needs to start with this realization. You are loved. You are accepted. You are secure. You don't have to do something to make yourself secure. It's simply who you are. It's where you're at. Because you have a father that no matter how much you screw up and how much you misrepresent him and how much you misunderstand him, he loves you and he's loved you from the moment he conceived of you in his mind, even before you ever breathed your first breath. Rest in that love. You don't have to earn it. And out of that abiding love, let him do in you what he designed you to do for the benefit of the world and for his glory, not your own. I'm going to invite the... the worship team to come forward. We're going to go into a time of response. And the first way we're going to respond this morning is we're simply going to allow ourselves to rest in the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And when you hear that word reckless, I want to reframe this for a moment. Because it doesn't mean that God is thoughtless. In fact, he's very thoughtful. I, I like to think of the, the reckless in this song as selfless, the self-sacrificial love that ultimately led him to the cross. It's a love that says, yeah, they don't deserve it, and yet I'm still willing to give my life away. Yeah, they, they, they don't understand or appreciate the depth of my love, and yet I love them anyway. That's what we mean when we're saying reckless, is that he is selfless and willing to give himself away for us. So let's begin by responding this morning by sitting in his love for us. spoke a word you were singing over me you have been so so good to me before I took a breath you breathed your life You have been so, so good to me. Since oh, the overwhelming, overwhelming never 
sitting there thinking about um, <laughs> thinking about my, my kids because for me it just really does give me access to the heart of a father our father when I think of my father's heart I realize that it's, it may be hard for us to rest in that truth but that doesn't make it not true right? Like my kids might feel insecure in my love but that doesn't make them insecure because it's, their, their security is not determined upon their feelings. And feelings, as we know, are incredibly fickle. Their, their standing with their mother and I is not determined how, how they feel, but rather upon how we feel towards them. They are secure because we love them, not because they've done something to earn it. You are secure, not because of how you feel. And there's probably some of in, you in here this morning who have a really hard time feeling secure in his love for you. That doesn't change the fact that you are secure and he loves you. But I was thinking about um, that line, there's no shadow, you won't light up coming after me. And I realized that that is true for us, that he will expose the darkness and expose the lies that have been sown into our own hearts by our adversary, the Satan, the accuser, who has whispered in our ear, you're not lovable, you're not enough, you're, you are a failure. If anybody knew this, they'd reject you. Your father knows this and he already has. And he exposes those for the lies that they are. But here's the amazing thing. When we can get past ourselves and get past our own sense of needing to perform so that we can rest in him and his love for us, then he actually uses us, invites us to be part of the way in which he exposes and drives back the shadows. The amazing thing about the love of our God is it doesn't just make us secure. It actually, it, it, he didn't, in Jesus dying on the cross did not just restore to us our identity as his sons and his daughters. It restored back to us our purpose as his image bearers who get to reflect, to radiate the light of his love into this world. And so as we continue to respond to his love for us, I want to invite you to respond in a tangible way. And you probably have been looking at, for those of you who are in the room, you've been looking at these strings of uh, strings 
um, that, are, that are hanging there, and then we got one up here in the front. There's no bulbs, and that's because you are the bulbs. And I'm going to invite you to respond as we do, as we respond, by going and grabbing a bulb. If you're coming up here for this string, I've got bulbs up here in the front. If you want to put a bulb in the side here, I got Marge in the back over there. I got Tom Phipps back there in the back. They've got bowls of, of these bulbs. It's kind of fun. Bowls of bulbs. Go grab a bulb. And as you, as you carry that bulb, just remember, this is what you were created to do. Maybe just for fun, try to think really hard and try really hard to make it light up before you plug it in. Just see if you can. If you can, I want to talk to you because that's really amazing. But if you're unable to, then I invite you to just go ahead and take one of these strings of lights, go to one of the empty sockets. The beautiful thing about our Father God is there's enough of Him for us to find a place to abide without taking somebody else's place. And then just go ahead and screw it into the socket. Allow it to abide. Let it be a tangible reminder that you were created to rest in him and live out of him in order to do what you were created to do. Let's keep responding together. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. Your holy presence living in me. This is my day. This is my daily bread, your very word, spoken to me, and I am desperate for you. This is the air I breathe. The air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. Your holy presence living in me. And I, this is my day.
so lost without you, Lord, that you are worthy of it all. Because you're worthy of it all. Yes, you're worthy of it all. For from the glory sing you are worthy you are worthy of it all you are worthy of it all yes for from you are all things and to you are all things you deserve It is certainly a lot prettier in here now. 
Um, and for those of you at home, I'm sorry I didn't have bulbs for you, but I give you permission to just unscrew a light bulb at home and put it back in. Um, so you can kind of get a little bit of... But this is a beautiful reminder for me that we have not been created to just rest in him and let that be the end of it. The light that our lives produce, the fruit our lives produce are not simply for our nourishment, not just for our own ability to see and rest. We have been created to rest in him and through that abiding connection to radiate into this sin-darkened world a love that is so contrary to the way that the world teaches us that love is ascribed. It's not a love that we have earned. It's a love we rest in. And this is a beautiful picture of what we get to be when the church comes together and brings our lights into this building. But here's the best part. And this is where the metaphor breaks down a little bit. Because we were not created to stay in this room and hide our lights within these walls. We were created to go and be the church, be the light beyond the walls of this place. The, the, the connection to your power source is long enough for you to remain connected to him even as you walk out of here. And so you are a light of God. Secure in him, utterly loved, and, and invited to radiate his love into this world. So as you leave today, recognize that the light has, is going out of the building because that's what you were designed to do. And you will find yourself going out to meals. The church is there. The light is there. Radiate his love there. You'll find yourself interacting with people that aren't going to go into a church building this weekend, but they're encountering the church when they're interacting with you. When you go back to your homes and your neighborhoods, remember you're loved. So you don't have to put them down in order to make yourself look better to God. He already loves you. You're secure in that. So love out of that. And then you'll be able to do you'll be able to produce the fruit of obedience by loving one another because you're secure. So Lighthouse community, I love you guys. I love getting to do life with you. If there's a way we can pray for you, you can fill out a prayer request and drop it in the back. If you want to give, you can give in the boxes in the back or online. But just, tell you what, put your hands out for a second. And this prayer is for each of us, including myself. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill, and just as that city cannot be hidden, just as you don't put a basket over the light and so hide it, so do not let your light be hidden. Rest in your identity as God's child, his son, his daughter, absolutely loved, so that you can bear that light into other relationships with other seemingly unlovable people. There's a lot of them out there. I know that because there's a lot of them in here too. But you are loved. And I am grateful that we get to be family. Now my Lighthouse community family, go be the church and let your light shine. Have a wonderful week. Oh.